Today's scripture reading is uh, from Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. Just as a recognition of the authority of God's word over our lives, I would invite you, even where you are right now, to stand um, as I read this. You can follow along with me in your, in your Bible too. Mark 12, 35 through 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Christ community. Excuse me for one moment while I set up a little station. I just want to make sure, is the mic in my face? Am I good? Okay. It's one of the aspects of being vertically challenged. Move this down as well. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Wang. My wife, Lauren, and I, uh, we're members here at Christ Community. Um, It is... uh, yeah, it's a, pri- it's a privilege. I'm thankful for these opportunities to, to even gather together in this way. I'm thankful for this opportunity this morning to be in God's Word with you all. So before we jump in, just want just to pray for us one more time. Ask God to, to meet with us, to guide us, um, to teach us from His Word. So pray with me. Father, I, I simply pray that you would open our eyes this morning to see great things from your word. Lord, would, would your word be like a seed that takes root in our hearts, that it would bear fruit, that it would accomplish the purpose for which you send it out. Lord, I pray that you do this by the power of your spirit working in us, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you hop on the internet and Google search the hashtag LastNormalPhoto, which maybe some of you will do right now at your home, uh, what you'll find are pictures of the last normal thing that people were doing before the COVID-19 pandemic fully hit. So what you'll see are pictures of uh, people attending baby showers or swimming at the beach Um, eating out at restaurants with friends, watching sports. Uh, Scrolling through my own phone, what I found, my last normal photo, 
was a picture of one of our uh, international church gatherings. So to give you a picture, just a group of about 25 people gathered in a home, no masks on, sitting less than six feet apart, uh, sharing a meal together. I think for a lot of us, these last normal photos, they kind of represent to us uh, what we see as the end of one era and the beginning of another. These last normal photos are kind of a, a beginning of the end moment. And in our passage from Mark today, we also have one of those beginning of the end moments. What happens from this point forward in the book of Mark has nothing short of world-changing and and life-altering implications. So, what is going on? Uh, For all of Mark 12, the current chapter that we are in, Jesus has been in the temple. Our passage this morning are his final words before Jesus steps out of the temple. After this, we really start seeing the dominoes begin to fall. With each subsequent event, Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross. Up to this point, we have seen Jesus in the temple going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes on all sorts of a, a variety of different issues. But before Jesus leaves, he has one final word to say to them, and it is not a good word. I think for us to fully feel or understand the weight of what Jesus says, um, we have to, in a way, step into the shoes of the people of Israel. We have to understand a little bit of their context. And so for the people of Israel, there has always existed among them a strong sense of national as well as religious identity. Even under their current occupation, Uh, of the Roman Empire, the Jewish people, they knew who they were. They were Israel, God's chosen people. They also knew where they were. They were in the promised land, the holy city, centered on God's temple. They also knew what their problem was. At least they thought they knew what their problem was, which is that they have the wrong ruler. They were ruled by pagan Romans. And lastly, they knew, at least they thought they knew, what the solution was to their perceived problem. The Messiah, or the Christ, who would be a great political leader, would come, deliver them from Rome, and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. So in the backdrop of these expectations, of this climate, of this culture, Here comes Jesus, who doesn't quite seem to fit their expectation. Instead, what we we have seen, uh, even in this chapter, from Jesus, in his dialogue and interactions with the religious leaders, is Jesus actually declaring condemnation on the temple, on the temple system, and its leaders. So what... What is going on? Well, let's jump in. Uh, Take a look. We're starting at verse 35 of chapter 12. And we're back in the temple with Jesus. 
after he defends and maneuvers uh, against some tricky line of questioning, it, it is now Jesus' turn. It's his turn to go on the offensive. And he, he launches a counterattack. Look at verse 35. Jesus taught in the temple. He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? It's an interesting question. Why, why would Jesus say this? Why would he bring up the Christ? What does the Christ have to do with anything? What does the Christ have to do with any, any of this? Well, who is the Christ? Again, for the, for the Jewish people, the Christ was a real embodied hope for a future Savior. The Christ was their ultimate hope, the ultimate solution to their problem. And again, for the Jewish people, their perception of their greatest problem was they felt what they most needed was political deliverance, deliverance from Rome. So their hope, their great hope, was, a, was in a political Christ. But what Jesus will show us is that their hope, this political hope for a political Christ, it was ultimately misplaced. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Jesus goes on to quote David himself from Psalm 110. And in this psalm, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So, in other words, the way that, the way that first line goes, The Lord God said to my Lord Christ. And Jesus takes that line and he, he identifies the fact that David himself calls the Christ his Lord. So verse 37, again, he asks, so how is he his son? To, to summarize, Jesus is really asking, how is the Christ, how is the Christ the son of David and the Lord of David. How is the Christ the Son and Lord? You see, the scribes, they, they rightly, correctly understood that the Christ would be the Son of David, the rightful heir, Israel's king. But what the, what the scribes didn't understand, what they misunderstood, they thought, they assumed that the Christ would only be the Son of David. In other words, their, their Christology, who they thought of Christ, was off. They thought he would only be the son of David. They thought that Christ would be someone who would fit right in, slot right in to their expectations, to what they thought they needed. They thought that Christ would be this political leader who would reestablish Israel's previous glory, last seen under their famous forefather, David. And so I wonder, I wonder for us, I thought of us, and I wonder if we can also be sometimes guilty of wanting Christ to, to slot into, to fit into our, our own expectations of what, he, of what we want him to be. I think just one example we need to think about is materialism. Jesus has a lot to say about money. In fact, uh, the the topic comes up later in our passage, um, but elsewhere he has a lot to say about money. But, 
but so does our culture. And when I, I think when we think about materialism, we shouldn't just think, it's not just about being rich. Uh, Kathy Keller points out that you can be a materialist at any income level. And so our culture, one thing that our culture tells us is that money can buy happiness, that we need material things in order to have joy, that material comforts are needed uh, for, for our life, for our uh, satisfaction. So do we expect, are there ways that we expect Christ to just slot right into, to fit into that materialistic expectation? In other words, will we listen, will we obey if Christ demands from us our material resources? Christ is not only the son of David, but he's the Lord of David. Christ is fully human and at the same time fully God. Christ is revealed to us as newborn Jewish baby born in a stable outside of Jerusalem, and at the same time, the infinite, infinite, eternal Lord of the universe. The Christ does not come, he has not come to just slot right into, to fit right into our expectations of him, because the Christ is Lord. He's the Lord of David. The Christ has not come to establish the kingdom of Israel. He has not come to establish the kingdom of America. He's not come to establish the kingdom of Dan or the kingdom of you. The Christ has come to establish the kingdom of God. So look what else that Jesus is careful to include from his quotation of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The Christ will be exalted above his enemies. Scribes, take, take notice because Jesus is not talking about the Romans. This counterattack has turned into a full-blown assault. And the crowd, as if they were at a sporting event, seeing the momentum shift, they're pleased. So let's, let's look at verse 38. And in his teaching, Jesus said... Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues in the places of honor at feasts. Jesus says, beware of the scribes. Beware of your pastors. Beware of your leading theologians. Beware of those people who seem to be closest to God. Beware of those people who are most honored in society. What is going on? The scribes, you can think of them as the original virtue signalers. The clothes they wore, the people they talked to, the places they ate and sat, uh, and the prayers they prayed— all of those things served to point other people to themselves. They wanted to look good. Hey, come and see how holy I am. Jesus says and accuses the scribes for, for leveraging their spirituality for their own personal gain. Verse 
over the course of this week as I, as I read this and, and considered this, and when I look honestly into my heart, it's, I mean, overwhelming to me how, how I do this. The same thing all the time. It, it feels almost that in everything I do, even the most genuine things, I, I still have one eye on the people around me. You know, who's, who's noticing? Will I be recognized? What are other people thinking? And I think that in, in our social media age, this temptation is just so great. So what, what, what about you? Do you have the spirit of the scribes? Are there ways that you might be guilty of leveraging your spirituality for personal gain? And then notice what else the scribes are guilty of. Verse 40. They devour widows' houses. Even though God has called his people in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament to care for the widow specifically and the poor generally, the scribes are here guilty of devouring their houses. Likely what Jesus means by this is in a financial sense where the scribes would take money from widows through some form of coercive extortion. And so seeking their own gain, the scribes were more than willing to step over the people who could give them no benefit. They abused the widows. The spirit, the spirit of the scribes, it is alive and it is dangerous. We can think of the Roman Catholic Church's practice of selling indulgences in Reformation times, which involves spiritual leaders selling forgiveness of sins for monetary gain. Uh, in more recent history, we can think of the American Church's cooperation in slaveholding America, which involved spiritual leaders perverting Scripture to justify the practice of slavery. Leveraging spirituality for personal gain. The spirit of the scribes, it's alive, it's dangerous, it's in me. It can exist in all of us. So what, what is going on? How did the scribes fall into this, this state of condemnation? And what Mark wants us to see, the connection he wants us to make, is that the problem is in the scribes' Christology. Who the scribes thought the Christ would be created in them misplaced expectation that led to misplaced living. Here's the principle. If we reduce the Christ, if we make the Christ into less than what he truly is, in other words, if we try and fit the Christ into our expectations, what we want him to be, then we will only end up using religion to serve our own sinful ends. Christ is no longer Lord. We are. And if we are Lord, Christ becomes nothing more than our servant. Remember what we heard in last week's sermon. What did Jesus say was the most important command? Love God and love your neighbor. 
you cannot love God if you do not love your neighbor. And likewise, you cannot love your neighbor if you don't love God. The scribes were guilty of both. And this, Jesus says, is deserving of a great condemnation. So what does the Christ have to do with this? What does the Christ have to do with anything? It turns out that what we believe about the Christ has life or death consequences. But of course, there's one last character that we need to take notice of in our passage, and that is the poor widow. Uh, at first glance, if you're like me, you might read uh, these verses and assume that Jesus is here giving a lesson about charitable giving. And I think while this passage certainly does and can teach us a lot about finances and generosity, I think when we read it in the, the context of this section of the narrative, it becomes evident that what Mark is trying to do is to invite us to compare the actions of this poor widow with those of the scribes. Who are the scribes guilty of abusing? Widows. Who here is commended by Jesus? A widow. So look at verse 41. Jesus sits down, sat down opposite the treasury, and he sets himself up for some people watching. What he sees are many rich people putting in large sums of money into the offering box. But what really catches his attention is a poor widow who came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. Although what the widow put in was financially tiny, just super insignificant, in God's economy, Jesus tells us what the widow put in was worth far more than those large sums of money. Why? Why was this so valuable? Listen again closely to Jesus' words. Verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. All she had to live on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. She put in all she had. She gave everything to the Lord. Compared with the scribes, nobody would have taken notice of this poor widow. Her, her, her status in society was, was just so far down the social ladder. Her offering, her tiny offering, would not have attracted any praise or recognition. Uh, compared with the scribes, what the widow did was not a show. There was no leveraging happening here. She had nothing to gain, yet she gave all she had. Just as an aside, shouldn't this teach us not to despise the little things? Some of us, some of us have great faith, many gifts. Some of us, like me, we have little faith. We have very few gifts. But think of the impact that this poor, this one poor widow has had on generations of Christians ever since her actions were noticed and recorded by Jesus. 
D.L. Moody once famously said, the world has yet to see what God will do with someone fully consecrated to him. What the world, what God will do with someone fully, fully consecrated to him. Whether that's a lot or a little doesn't make a difference, but it means all. So sweet that God uses even the little things to make a huge impact when they're fully devoted to him. So how do we have the spirit of the widow? The solution is not to take these verses and twist them into some, some rule for our giving or some rule for our spirituality in general. To do so would only, to be, would only be to make a new law that we're required to follow. You only have to look at the scribes to see how that turns out. To have the spirit of the widow, we need to go back to the Christ. We need a Christ who is son of David and Lord of David. We need a Christ who teaches us that the way up is down. We need a Christ who proclaims to us that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We need a Christ who shows us that the pathway toward his own exaltation first comes through crucifixion. Jesus is the Christ who is Lord of all. He has not come. He he doesn't come to fit into, to slot into our expectations. He has come to save us from what we most desperately needed. Jesus has come to deliver us from the condemnation of our sin. From this point forward, Jesus is headed to the cross. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David, the Lord of David, the one who will be exalted, who will be lifted up above his enemies, has first come to die for his enemies. What is going on? Jesus died for sinners. If you trust in Christ, you will be forgiven for your sins. But Jesus did not stay dead because after he died, three days later, he rose again from the dead, ascended to God, and is seated right now with God at his right hand. And if you trust in Christ, you also will rise with him and you will be seated, positioned with him next to God. This is good news for all people. This is good news for the spirit of the scribe. Christ has purchased for you forgiveness of sins. Christ has purchased for you a free righteousness bought with his blood. You can stop your self-justification. Christ has purchased for you a position, a seat of honor before God. You can stop trying to hide your shame. Christ has purchased for you acceptance into God's family as a son or as a daughter, you can stop trying to earn your validation. You can stop your spiritual leveraging. This, this is the key to the spirit of the widow. There's a, there's a line in the hymn, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, that goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light 
of his glory and grace. The spirit of the widow is able to give all she has because in Christ she has something far more wonderful. Do you want to be exalted? Do you want to be lifted up? Do you want honor? Do you want unconditional love, total acceptance? Then take up your cross, lay down your life, and Christ will raise you up. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. So last thing, what does it look like to lay down your life? Think again of those that you might be guilty of neglecting or stepping over in order to climb that that ladder of personal gain. Maybe it's someone in our church, those people who are just hard to talk to or those that you don't share a whole lot in common with. Maybe it's the poor and the oppressed, those from another ethnicity, those who don't speak good English, those who don't have a lot of money, those who we just feel like we shouldn't associate with. Will you turn away from seeking your own gain in order to love the least of these? Will you lay down your life to Christ the Lord? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you came to pay the penalty for our sins. Thank you that in Christ we can know true forgiveness, true honor, true lifting up. Father, I pray that we would be a people, that we would be a church who does not use our spirituality for our own gain, but that we would be a people who lay our lives down for your glory and for the good of those around us. I pray that you would do this in us. In Jesus' name, amen.